Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. From WDEV Radio in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, January 5th, and we are glad to have you along with us to wrap up the week. Today on the show, the week in review, the first week of the legislature is in the books, and it's pretty clear that housing, public safety, climate change, flood resilience are top priorities. But what else? Governor Phil Scott outlined his priorities in a State of the State address Wednesday. We will get to it all with a leading member of the House Democrats, Waterbury Representative Tom Stevens. He's chair of a key committee in the middle of it all. At 10 a.m., we head to Washington and have our weekly chat with former congressman and now political analyst Bob May. Believe it or not, we are starting to hear about a Republican effort to impeach President Joe Biden. We'll get an update on Israel and Hamas, the coming presidential campaign, a Trump criminal case update from Bob, and more. And then to bring us home, a new candidate for governor. Her name is Esther Charlson. She is a Democrat from Middlebury, and she is announcing her candidacy for governor at 1 p.m. today. We'll get a sneak preview at 1030. All that and your phone calls today. Give us a call at 802-244-1777. I take your emails at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. What did you think of the governor's state of the state address? Did you have any reaction to our show on Wednesday about the threats to the safety of public officials? Uh, we're going to do some follow-up on that as well. So give us a call. We love hearing from you. You can hear us on your AM and FM dial and worldwide online at wdevradio.com. Just click on the listen button, as I like to tell my mom. And if you miss the show, you can catch up with the podcast that we make available very soon after the show ends. All this and more on today's show. But first, this review of the week. As a follow-up to our show on the safety of public officials, many state houses this week across the country shut down and were evacuated after a bomb threat emailed to officials across the country as they opened their own legislative sessions. No explosives were found, and federal officials quickly dismissed the threats as a hoax. These threats follow a state of false reports of shootings at the home of public officials in recent days, and a new term has entered the American language. It's called swatting, and it happens when someone calls the police and falsely reports a crime taking place at the home of a public official. The hope is that police swarm the official's home and disrupt their lives. Or worse, it is happening a lot now. Connecticut, Georgia, Hawaii, Kentucky, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, and Montana were among the states evacuating their state houses this week. These threats have come to Vermont, where the top prosecutor in Burlington, the Speaker of the House, and several others have all been threatened, and uh, they are afraid for their safety. None of that happened in Vermont this week, however where Governor Phil Scott gave the latest of many state-of-the-state state addresses. He immediately set up a confrontation 
with the Democratic supermajority over spending, taxes, public safety, and other issues. It's worth noting that the governor is now serving his fourth term. This should be his, I think by my account, his eighth state of the state address, including his service as the state senator. The governor has been in that state house since 2001. And if you do the math, that's 23 years, a very long time in political years. He is truly a veteran of this process. Scott warned the legislators to rein in spending, urging them to keep spending to a 3% increase and saying that federal funds that came during and after COVID had run out. He demanded reform of Act 250 as a way to speed up housing construction for Vermonters and urged them to be tougher on crime. In response, the House Democratic supermajority voted immediately to override the governor's veto of, a re- of the reform of the bottle bill, a bill that passed last session. The vote was 112 to 32, and that means that several Republicans joined in the override. I'm not sure how much to read into that vote, but it sure makes clear that the Democrats are not afraid to pass their agenda. The governor has set a record for the number of vetoes he has issued in his career, and Democrats in full control of the legislature have overridden those, many of those vetoes, also a record. On the bottle bill, H-158 would overhaul the state system for recycling beverage containers by expanding the state's existing bottle deposit law to include more types of drinks like water bottles that were, that were part of the original legislation, which turned 51 years old last year. I promise to get into the bottle bill more deeply uh, because that affects how we deal with those pesky blue recycling bins. Seems to me that instead of recycling those Gatorade bottles, we're redeeming them now for five cents. But why don't we get Paul Burns from VPIRG on the show to give us the details? They were the prime lobbying force behind this change. The Vermont Senate on Thursday voted to mandate that its own members publicly disclose additional information about their personal finances and potential conflicts of interest. That was a voice vote. It was not a bill. It was just changing the rules of the Senate. The voice vote appeared to be unanimous, according to reporting by VT Digger, It came nearly nine months after Digger documented deficiencies in the transparency rules governing Vermont lawmakers. Uh, In their series, uh, Vermont Digger documented how difficult it was for Vermonters to get information about their legislators and how little was revealed by mandatory disclosure forms. So that is new transparency in the Vermont Senate. So when it comes to uh, conflicts of interest, Uh, outside employment, service on boards, status on landlords. We're now going to know more. And that'll be really interesting, especially if you're a journalist. When we come back, we'll talk about all this and more with Representative Tom Stevens, one of the Democrats that overrode the governor's veto on the bottle bill and who will be at the center of the action for many weeks Uh, But before we do that, I see that we've got a call. So why don't we get to it really quickly before we take the break? Uh, Rama from Williamstown, you're on the line. Yeah, good. This is uh, also, I guess, a question for when your your rep comes on after the break there. It's because one of the things that I haven't heard from Governor Scott, I haven't heard from anybody in the legislature, is coming out and saying to the public, listen, 
we need to think very long term. We are going to need to make some changes in our current lives, and that's going to include some sacrifices. And this is what we have to do. We don't hear any of that. We are in the middle of a grotesque climate crisis. And uh, I mean, even the advertising on your radio station acts like it isn't in existence. And I'm not harping on DEV or anybody, but everybody talks like it. We're not in the crisis stage. We are. And we need some leadership to get up there and and to tell us that it's time for us to sacrifice because our grandkids and their grandkids are going to depend on what we do right right now. So thank you. Rama, thanks for the call. You're setting the stage. Um, When we come back, we'll talk about that with Tom Stevens, the representative from Waterbury. Um, He chairs a key committee. So uh, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about comes right through, right through his inbox. So we'll be right back. I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We are back on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Tom Stevens is the Democratic Chair of the House Committee on General and Housing. He is at the center of most of the major issues happening in the House, especially on housing this year. And he joins us now. Representative Stevens, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Okay. I assume you're in the state house where things have kicked off uh, really quickly. No pomp and circumstance in the second half of the legislative session. What's uh, give us your first uh, take on what happened this week? Uh, well, this week was I mean, the, the circumstance that happened this week is simply the state of the state addressed by the by the governor. And, and um, you know, as far as it goes, as an introduction to how he's viewing the second session, it was pretty clear that he's, um, you know, reminding us that we have less funds than we're than we've had over the last several years throughout the um, pandemic. But to your previous callers um, questions, you know, there is there is a fundamental change that seems to need to happen. There's a lot of things that we can't not do. Uh, and, and those are just piling up and, and those are going to require a lot of action and perhaps some, you know, some increase in revenues or some priority changes to be able to deal with them. But there's so many things that are piling up that are coming out of the pandemic, but that existed beforehand. The pandemic merely showed us that we're pretty, um, that we've managed to get by with a lot of duct tape and, and bailing wire over the years in terms of social programs and to, in terms of how to take care of the most Vermonters with the um, money that we have, but also with the policies and the outlook that we have. And while, um, you know, we've been trying to, the House has been trying to do that hard work of, of adjusting our view and understanding that things like climate, things like housing, things like um, slowdowns in the judiciary, things like um, the increased number of of overdoses, the amount of wealth differential that's increased since the since the pandemic even started, um, has really increased the pressures on our poverty mitigation programs, um, which include things like mental health uh, and 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 housing for people who are facing increased rent costs. Um, Etc. It's it. There's a lot. There's a lot on our plate. There's a lot of serious issues that have to be looked at and dealt with. Talking about them in a way that um, you know that that prepares. I suppose the public is a harder. That's a harder thing. We talk about it all the time in this building. Getting the word out to the public is a little bit harder. Um, and I hope that they understand that we are trying to deal with these issues, but we are dealing with them in 
first of all, in a in a Vermonter style, because we want to, you know, certainly coming out of a year where we had a massive, massive flooding without throughout the state. Um, we have communities that are dealing with climate change firsthand. And, and in a community like Waterbury, where we were one of the harder hit towns in the December flooding, um, while it wasn't nearly as serious as as it was in July, which was not nearly as serious in Waterbury as it was in Irene, you know, it, saying that there was only two feet of water in my basement isn't really um, the, the, the kind of the kind of attitude that we need to take here, um, or when we're when we're considering what's happening with the climate and what it means to people's psychological standing. I mean, there's a lot of people who have a PTSD in, in Waterbury and in, in, in now in Montpelier and in Barrie and in Ludlow and other towns in Mad River Valley that got hit hard. So we're, we're trying to just sort that all out. And we're just at the beginning of the session. It's not really, um, you know, there are committees that are underway. Uh, we're just now hearing about a month late from the administration on the Budget Adjustment Act. And so that that conversation is starting today, and that's just taking money that um, we either received more tax benefit, more tax receipts, or there have been changes in how we want to spend some of the money that we budgeted back in in May and June, um, and how we're going to reappropriate that. And that conversation is just starting today, and that's got to go pretty quickly. So um, it's we, as always, in the second year of a session, we've hit the ground running. So uh, uh, let's take that. So that that's a mouthful. That's a huge plate of of uh, issues to deal with. How do you sit down with uh, from the Speaker of the House, uh, Jill Kruinski, on down? How do you kind of map out a, a way forward to deal with all those issues? How do you separate them? How do you organize yourselves? I, I mean, obviously, you do it via a committee structure. But it's still a lot to take on. How do you, how do you kind of separate them and organize your thinking around all well, of these issues? Uh, it seems the first step is the committee set, you know, setting. Um, Speaker Krowinski has been very aggressive in letting the chairs of her committees know that you know simply that we can do hard things, and that really gives us the permission to delve into some really deep, deeply, more deeply than than people might think. Or people more even more deeply than we're able, than we've been able to in the past about issues. I mean, for instance, in my committee this year, in the House, we're going to be dealing with landlord-tenant law. You know, in, there's there's going to be 2,000 evictions by the you know by the time they stop counting how many evictions went into into the court system in 2023, it's going to be close to 2,000 Vermonters or 2,000 Vermont families that that were being evicted from. And that's that's an increase of pre-COVID times of probably five or six hundred households. We need to look at the existing statutes and find out, is there a way that we can reduce evictions? Because if we can reduce evictions, then we don't need to find new houses for them in this in this really circular process that we've been dealing with over the last several years since the eviction moratorium ended, um, which was a pandemic-oriented policy. So we're going to be delving into that deeply. Each of the committees have to have to take make priorities for sure, but we can only do what we can do in the House, and then we have to find out what's possible to pass in in the House, and then it gets passed over to the Senate. And we don't, you know, while we stay in touch with the Senate, they have they might have different priorities than we do. They might have different ways of looking at the same problems. 
that we're looking at. And, and that's a natural process. And it, it, I, while I would like to always see us a little bit more aligned, you know, the fact is, is that we're a different body and we're set up differently and, and we have different amounts of time to look into items. And then it becomes a, a larger issue for the body of the house. You know, can we can we pass those bills? And now, with a consideration of the way that the governor has has vetoed some of our strongest priorities over the last several years, um, will we be able to override those vetoes? You know, because we're not it's not guaranteed. While we have 104 Democrats and the number of progressives and independents, you know, we're all individuals and we all serve in our individual communities, and it's not a guarantee that we can override the governor's veto on any given issue. Um, but they are getting more serious, and the differences between the legislative branch and the executive branch on certain issues have been, you know, the, the differences have been expanding. So it's it's up to the speaker's office, in one hand, to kind of do the, um, um, you know, the the making sure the planes land on time and in the right runways. Um, but invariably, there's going to be some backup, and and we're just really going to have to figure out what is what is it we can do exactly in four and a half months. Can you Not take always an easy into, answer. Can you take us into your committee and tell us uh, what's on what's on your list of priorities in the in what I used to call the General Affairs, Housing, and Military Committee, but now it's just General and Housing. It is just General and Housing, and so the general under the general um, title, we're going to be dealing with, or we have bills on our wall that deal with things that range from. Should we change daylight savings time or, or standard time um, to one time, which may or may not you know, go up on the list of priorities because we have so many other priorities that have to do with things like housing? Um, we're focusing on we're going to be focusing on, again, landlord tenant issues, rental issues, um, and because because part of the pro part of solving the issue of the housing crisis is, again, keeping people in their housing. And right after the right after COVID started, we had what was called the coronavirus relief funds, and we were given money by the federal government that had virtually no strings to it. So we could create a program that was actually very successful. And then a year later, when when more funds started coming out, there were more strings attached, more conventionally federal to state money attached, and it became difficult to work with this population of property owners and tenants together which we were able to do in 2020, early part of 2021. So we're going to be focusing on on seeing what we can do to help keep people in their housing. And um, that's going to require us working with both the tenant advocates and with the landlord advocates because you know, landlords have been dealing with property damages that have been far greater than they were prior to the pandemic. Um, people are just angrier in general, and, and people are um, – have been more destructive when they've had issues with their with their living space, and so we you know we want to try to create the, the tools that are necessary, and that's going to take quite a bit of time because it's yeah. not an easy issue. Um, you know, when wh what I've learned here is that there is the desire for public policy, just as I've explained, but when we're dealing with people's private property. It, it becomes very difficult to to kind of find that balance in between those two conversations. Somebody who owns a building is not going to easily say, "Well, sure, I can give up, you know, a certain amount of my wealth by doing something here." I can't, but I, you know, they're running a business; they can't lose money. Um, but by the same token, how you know we we believe that housing is a human right, and so people should be able to 
find, have a place to live that is safe and affordable. Not easy to well, get there, to right now. And, and when it comes to housing, Tom, is there? Uh, I know you did a you did a big housing bill last year, hundred million dollars or so. Is there is there another omnibus? housing bill with a lot of funding attached to it coming down the pike or is it is it uh, sort of picking away at the problem in in you know in different committees as you go along well i I wouldn't consider it picking um simply because you know i mean 15 years ago it was really hard to get housing on the map period and the discussion of housing and how important it was and how important affordable housing is and now since the since the depression or the, the great recession and 2008, 2009, um, and and the effects on the construction industry at that time that that have really made a difference now because we went through a period of time where no new housing was being built or no new no new um, private housing was being built, and so you know from the public housing perspective, you know there's a there's always a focus on capital on money. Um, the money that the the money that the state is able to appropriate, we've been we've been gifted as all states have been gifted with money from the federal government throughout the pandemic, but now we're relying on state funds again, and those have always come at a premium. So we're going to be you know the the, the behind the scenes or the advocacy work that we're going to be doing is going to be on making sure that the same amount of money or better is in in the budget. I mean, if we have a long term plan for housing. To consider, it's going to have to be, you know, it, budgets are done year by year, and you know we can't we can't buckle in the future legislature on expenditures. Um, so e- this conversation is going to happen every year, but we want to create a policy that says, well, if we can invest 100 million dollars a year like we did last year, we can begin to catch up at least on the affordable housing side, and then then in other committees where zoning is, is contemplated. For instance, um, that's going to be really important. I mean, look at downtown Waterbury. It is much of it is in a flood area, um, whether it's in a flood zone or a floodway. Where can you you can still develop down there, but you have to make accommodations for it, which is not inexpensive, and you have to also have the correct zoning. And the town should have more more power over that zoning than than they make than they may have now. And so those issues will be part of a larger omnibus bill, I believe. Um, also, there's considerations for changing up, um, perhaps clarifying what can be done in downtown designated areas. Downtown designations have always been cre- – they've been created with boundaries that are tax boundaries, not necessarily building boundaries. And then there are, of course, flood maps, et cetera, that have to be considered before you can you can build more where there's infrastructure, where there's water and sewer, which is where you can build more densely. And those are all things that, on a policy basis, are smart growth. Basically, can we can we can we build here? But when you're in the floodway and you've just experienced the flood, you have to think more than once before you go forward with these policies. And so, the, you know, as far as what's going to come through the House, again, I'm focusing on um, while those issues will come through different committees. The housing committee itself will be focused a little bit more on making sure that there's funding available for the the continued um, construction of affordable housing. There's been some programs that have um, allowed for some benefit to private developers if they build in a certain way or in a certain place or of a certain percentage of that housing. Tom, uh, what, what did you think of the governor's 
state of the state address. I, I, Rama pointed out on the phone earlier that it was short on, on proposed solutions to climate and other issues. Uh, and then I noticed that the House overrode the bottle bill veto with 132 votes. It's pretty clear that, and the, and the governor acknowledged himself, he can talk all he wants, but that's about all he can do when it comes to the supermajority in the House. But what do you think about his address? Um, I, I wasn't, um, you know, I, I've seen so many of these state of the state addresses now that they would have to be, you know, there's been important ones. This one, this one was just um, pretty, pretty mellow. I mean, it didn't really get to, I don't think the governor was really aiming to do anything more than just sort of re- go over what what he views and what the administration views are going to be the road bumps in the way, which some of it is some of it is um, financial, of course, because the the money situation is changing so radically from the last several years. And you know, but he did focus on the fact that housing is one of the most important issues that um, we face, and that has been the case for quite some time. So while I, I, I do appreciate the focus on housing and the ability to you know, see that we need to do something, um, we're not going to build our way out of the housing crisis. We're not going to um, we're not going to keep people in apartments out of our way out of the housing crisis, um, but that really is a that really is a first step, and, and that's what a, that's what I appreciated more than anything else. Um, the rest of the speeches, this rest of the speech was, um, you know, it was just his way of expressing how he feels about how things are and what the vision, his vision of Vermont is, and um, you know, and it was his time to express it, so he did, and. Yeah. You know the, the the real the real meat on the bone is going to be the budget, and that's in three that's in what three weeks. So um, that's where we begin to see what that vision begins to look like and how the administration envisions it. You know, and again, it's it's it, while it's easy to sometimes it's easy to um, try to say, well, we have a we have a veto proof majority. And, and we can do whatever we want. That's not really true. I mean, we're still going to work in a bipartisan way as best we can, or quadpartisan way, really. And we're going to be doing um, policies that that we've heard from Vermonters are necessary um, and that they want to hear about and that they want to see things like the bottle bill. Um, there was no reason to veto, in our opinion, there was no reason to veto the bottle bill. It had been worked on for years, as long as I've been in in the state house, we've been talking about redoing the bottle bill, but um, you know, we finally got it done last year in a way that that people thought was a reasonable compromise. And um, you know, the fact that the governor vetoed that and and a half a dozen other bills that we were able to override, you know, speaks to the differences between the core values that we have versus you know versus the, those of the administration. And you know, that's that's. That's how we govern. Sometimes it's not. Pretty. I noticed. And, uh, <laughs> I, I noticed um, a, a big issue that was not talked about yesterday. Can't talk about them all. Was paid family leave. I know you spent a lot of time on it in your committee last year. Um, is that on the table, or has it fallen off the table because we've done? You did the big childcare bill. You did a big housing bill, and there just isn't the bandwidth to get to something like that is is paid family leave on the table at all you would have to ask the senate 
about that. That's where the bill is residing in the Senate right now, and, and I would hesitate to. I, I don't know what their priorities are exactly. Um, so you would, you, when you have a senator on, or when you have the Senate pro tem back on, you can ask him. Um, we we basically have done our work on the on the um, pay family leave bill funding. It of course is always going to be an issue, and the fact that the fact that the child care bill did utilize the payroll tax. I mean, he's making some people a little bit gun shy about furthering use of the payroll tax to to, to do the the paid family leave bill. But I still am supportive of the bill and hope to see it move forward. But it's not it's out of our hands right now. Okay. Any other uh, issues for you in your committee besides uh, landlord tenant? Uh, um, we have some labor. We have some labor issues that are coming up. I mean, over the last several years, most of our work worker-oriented bills have been related to things like minimum wage or paid family leave or paid sick days. And there's actually some some bills that are focused a little bit more on um, organized labor. There's one S102 that came over from the Senate that has some proposals in it that that we'll take a look at this year. We'll have we'll have bandwidth. To look at labor bills, um, we're also we also have some social equity bills. You know, our committee has has assumed kind of a um, as part of our portfolio social equity bills, whether it's discrimination or um, other forms of what we would call social equity. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from a couple of years ago is a great example of of that kind of work that that our committee is doing. And so we'll be looking to see what kind of bills are introduced over the next couple of weeks. That fit into that side of the portfolio, um, and and so those the, between housing and, and labor, I think that's going to be our main focus. And then, you know, much like much like life, um, no one considered until July that we would be dealing with flood uh, recovery and resilience issues again. And those things, some of those will come through our committee as well as they relate to housing. So it's a full plate. Um, there are already moments here in the first week where I feel like it's already May, and it's going to be, you know, I can see the I can see the calendar, you know, filling up as we as we speak, and um, you know, all the committees are getting back to work. All the all the committees have incredibly intense work in in front of them. Um, the the Natural Resources Committee is going to be dealing with Act 250 reform, among many other things. Um, judicial reform is still on the table. Um, you know, we, there was just a report that there are some 14,000 cases that are still on dockets across the state. You know, that is just you know because of undercapacity. Um, that's not justice served. And so we're going to. I know that committee is going to be working really hard on that. Of course, appropriations it has to deal with declining funds that are going to be available to be spent. The Ways and Means Committee has to deal with the school tax issue along with um, raising revenue to help pay for some of the programs that we would like to see done. And that's a fundamental difference between, um, you know, the, between the General Assembly and, and the House and the administration is just like, do we have enough funding coming in and should we consider raising revenue in a way that is harmless to most Vermonters? And so, again, all of that's ahead of us. I, I did. I noticed that uh, Peter Conlon, the chair of the House Education Committee, talked sounded the alarm on uh, school construction. Um, that is always a lot of money as well, right? Oh, it's been decades now. I mean, actual decades since we've committed funding on a statewide level to help schools um, 
rebuild. And, you know, I can speak for our local district. I mean, Harwood, Harwood High School was last renovated in the early 90s. So we're talking about 30 years of, of um, having a plant that is now a little bit out of date in places. It has to be readjusted considering how many students we may have, but also the systems themselves uh, are 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 old and need to be replaced. And the price tag on that, I think, for the the current price on that is is I think for every school is large. Yeah, I was okay. just in a new school last last June in in Winooski. You know, they they did a. You know, the Winooski's share was some sixty million dollars or something to you know to have their to have their elementary school and their high school and their junior high school in the same plant. You know, but phenomenal amounts of money that need to be that need to be allocated for that. And those are, those are very 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 difficult conversations. And last question before we let you go, because uh, I know you got to get back to committee. The every time I walked in the state house in the off session, there's construction going on especially underground. Any physical changes to the building that you saw when you first walked in this week? No, they've they've pretty much patched up everything that they could before we got here. Um, there's a couple of spots where they're where they're still doing some outdoor construction, or they will when when it warms up. But a lot of the um, you know they they really work hard to make sure that once the legislature is back in session, that there's not any um, anything I can trip over. Um, so, you know, we there's there's definitely some issues that they're continuing to work out, but you know, they they pretty much close up shop on the first of the year when it comes to the construction. But it's okay. an incredible amount, especially after the flood. You know, when when went and knocked out elevators in both the pavilion building and and in the tax building, which is on either side of the state house, and those are buildings that are slowly coming back online. And and you know, we do not have a lot of space in this building to do the work with the support groups, you know, whether it's the tax department, whether it's joint fiscal office, whether it's attorneys, um, you know, having square footage to do the work of government is, is at a premium already. So having lost some of it in, in the July flood was, was really hard on, on the functioning of government and, um, and the bureaucracy. So uh, they're okay. going to get back to it and do what they can in the, in the, in the Capitol complex, to help make sure that Vermonters aren't, you know, put behind the eight ball when it comes to things like the Department of Motor Vehicles, et cetera, or the tax department where they really need to have customer service. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tom Stevens, uh, you're great to join us. Tom Stevens is the chair of the General Affairs and Housing Committee in the House. He is a Democrat, and uh, we will see you down the road. Open invite. Come on the show anytime to give us an update. Thanks for All right. Thanks, on. Kevin. Next time I'll be a little less caffeinated. So um, appreciate the time. <laughs> Take care. Tom right, Stevens. Uh, Tom Stevens, a key chair, uh, Waterbury. And uh, Teresa Wood is the other member from Waterbury, and she's the chair of the Human Services Committee. So Waterbury is well represented in the Vermont legislature, uh, what, uh, what I call the General Assembly. We are back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. We're going to take your calls just for a couple of minutes here uh, before the next hour when we go to Washington, D.C. to talk to Bob Nay. So much going on in D.C. that we've got to get to. Um, but we'll take your calls. Give me a call, 244-1777. I was fascinated by 
Tom Stevens uh, talking about the governor and his state of the state address. He, in, in my view, Tom kind of, uh, oh, I would say that he doesn't think that the governor is that relevant. Um, we got all the usual words about working in a bipartisan fashion, but he basically said that the governor didn't come with any major proposals and that all the policy work and proposals are going to come from the House and the Senate. Um, and that, uh, that pretty clear that the Democrats have the votes, good or bad, to override the governor on a whole host of issues. Uh, so, boy, I'll tell you, we, we've had Paul Dane, the uh, the uh, uh, the executive no, the chairman of the Vermont Republican Party on the show uh, several times to talk about the state of the Republican Party. There just is no Republican Party in in Vermont these days that is electing enough members of the legislature that they can push back on this Democratic supermajority. And um, that has that has real consequences. Uh, so uh, I it's going to be fascinating to see uh, how the governor deals with that. His one tool under the Vermont Constitution is to veto bills. And he, as I pointed out earlier, he can the governor has vetoed more bills than any governor in the history of Vermont. That's all he's got. And uh, and if a Democratic supermajority can override him, he really doesn't have a lot of other tools at his disposal other than the bully pulpit. But, you know, as the old saying goes, elections matter. Um, here's another story. And again, feel free to give us a call, 244 uh, the EB-5 scandal, uh, a recent story in Vermont Digger just the other day, says that the insurance carrier AIG is refusing to provide coverage for the legal claims made by the defrauded foreign investors in projects in the Northeast Kingdom. That means, and, and that came uh, from Vermont Attorney General Charity Clark, who told members of the House Appropriations Committee during a hearing Wednesday that AIG property casualty uh, is denying coverage, and that's going to cost the state $16.5 million. Uh, they, VT Digger got a bunch of documents that revealed this, and sounds like the, House of, the Appropriations Committee uh, called up uh, the Attorney General and asked her to come in and explain this. We'll have the Attorney General on the phone to on, on the on the show to talk about this, but that that's a biggie. Sixteen point five million bucks. The EB five uh, scandal continues, and it just seems to never end. Um, Sixteen point five million bucks. It's on the taxpayers. Um, so, gosh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, Smuggler's Notch Resort has been hit with fines for safety violations following the death of a three year old. Uh, drowning in a water tank. Uh, according to VT Digger, employees who worked on the tank told state safety investigators they didn't remember if the lid ever had the necessary bolts. Um, that is, you know, that's a, that's that's really really too bad. Um, the I, I I must say it was really interesting to see the Vermont Senate beefing up 
its financial disclosure requirements. Now, remember, that's not a bill that they passed. That is a rule that they made. Each chamber, the House and the Senate, uh, comes up. They each have a rules committee, and they come up with their own rules to govern their behavior, the way they dress, the way they talk on the floor to each other, uh, the way they behave. And the way that they re- disclose their financial interests. Typically in Vermont, um, we've we've trusted each other, and uh, it, it it has been small enough so that generally the press and the public has a handle on the private financial interests of the senators who the thirty senators who serve in Montpelier. It seems as if uh, time ha- the time has come to update those transparency rules. And so uh, Senate President Philip Ruth uh, said that he had no pushback from other senators about the changes. Uh, they're going to require senators to file a more comprehensive form um, that, that is much like the ones that candidates for state office uh, file. It asks about their employment, their investments, and other income greater than $5,000. It asks about their board service. uh, And if they have greater than a 10% ownership in a a company, they need to say so. Uh, It also asks about leases or contracts with the state or lobbying activities. Strangely, a state senator, and I got to tell you, I've always been amazed at this. This is the case in many other states. A state senator in Vermont can also be a lobbyist, um, and and when I used to be uh, more involved in that game, the uh, I'd be amazed traveling around the country, and you, you've got lobbyists who are also state senators, especially in southern states, but pretty much all over the country. It's pretty fascinating. Um, so, importantly, also. Senators must also disclose under the new rules uh, information about their spouses or domestic partners. Uh, Baruth said he understood that some would argue that senators should disclose even more to the public. But he said, quote, I think any information that we can provide is going to help people have an understanding of where their elected representatives are coming from. Um, He said, if people discover discrepancies, if we have a George Santos among us, We'll hear from people outside the building, he said, referring to the disgraced former congressman from New York. Uh, that's that's going to be interesting. The, the House Disclosure Forum asks even less of its members than previous Senate form did. Only a lawmaker's employer and any board affiliations uh, are required. So the, the House does require its members to file the candidate disclosure form. Um, so we're getting we're getting closer to a more transparent uh, system so that we can understand the personal wealth of our legislators. The the pushback here is going to be legislators are going to say, you know, uh, too much invasion in my personal privacy means that I'm not going to want to serve in office, and you've got to strike that balance between. Uh, the public having the, the knowledge of the uh, finance finances of these uh, legislators versus the right to privacy of the legislators. So uh, we'll see uh, where that goes. 
We're going to take a break. We take your calls, 244-1777. When we come back, Bob Ney, on all things Washington, D.C., there's a lot to get to. Uh, Biden, Trump, the presidential election, Israel, Hamas, uh, not to mention Jeffrey Epstein, and whether any of the news coming out about Jeffrey Epstein actually matters. Um, I'm going to ask Bob Ney about that because... uh, Nobody knows more about Washington than Bob. Uh, So you are listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll be right back with Bob Ney after these messages. You're listening to The Friendly Pioneer, WDEV. 